Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No, they, they, they did know what they were doing. They did. It's hard to know for sure how much palettes have changed but they weren't just there was sometimes sometimes you do get the feeling that they're just trying to throw sugar in everything a little bit of it because it's sugar mm-hmm. but sugar does work in cookery it can enhance you know and we do it today with tomato sauces a pinch of sugar and you lift the whole thing yeah and the same can happen with spices you know and that's what was interesting about that anglo norman collection that it does offer these little nuggets of information that you know you can improve a spice by adding a bit of sugar it will bring out or this spice will bring out the other spice as a counterpoint and so there are there are people that understand about cookery it's not all yeah you know it's not all mindless because in the past uh, the medieval cookery suffered with the reputation of just being mindless use of spices <laughs> Welcome back to the Delicious Legacy Podcast, with me, Thomas Dinas, and to another archaeogastronomical adventure. This time, we are continuing our medieval adventure with an exciting interview with Dr. Christopher Monk, who's doing the Monk's Medieval Cuisine YouTube video channel and also writing a book about medieval cuisine. Here on this episode... He will tell us all about it and all about how to interpret and understand medieval recipes and medieval manuscripts and bring them to the modern kitchen. Enjoy! Hello, Dr. Monk. Welcome to the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me again. Yes, indeed. This is the second time. You're a sucker for punishment, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, I think you're only the second guest that uh, has been twice in the podcast now. Right, okay. I'm privileged. You are in the company of... I am genuinely privileged. (laughs) So am I. Thank you for joining me. And um, basically, so you are here to tell us a little bit about medieval uh, food in general, but also some more specific stuff. But before we start, for people who don't follow you on your YouTube channel or on Twitter, who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm Christopher Monk and I am a food historian, or that's one of my hats. And I also work with um, manuscripts and I, I work for myself. So I have a consultancy business where I deal and work with people in the heritage sector. Um, one of the main 
one of my main clients is Rochester Cathedral, and I look at a lot of their manuscripts for them and offer public historic public history interpretations of those. And uh, the food history is more my project, as it were, so to speak. So I'm writing a book about Richard II's uh, cookery treaties, and hopefully that will be published in not, not too long from now. So that's mainly what I'm up to at the moment. My um, website is modernmedievalcuisine.com, and I have a YouTube channel, uh, Monk's Modern Medieval Cuisine, as well. And I produce videos uh, based on uh, manuscripts, medieval manuscripts, from mostly from England, but also a few from France and further afield as well. And uh, I recreate the recipes for a modern kitchen. Great. Fantastic. That's why I call it modern medieval. So it's a kind of way of trying to bring the recipes up to date and make them uh, of use to modern cooks. Indeed, yes, because obviously when we're cooking some recipes that are almost a thousand years old, things are very different. Yes, yes, and you must find that even more because you go back even further than I do. So I tend to go back probably no earlier than the 13th century, generally speaking, but I think you've gone back further than that, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I'm tr- I have tried a few things from two and a half thousand years ago. It's quite a challenge, isn't it, recreating things? And uh, even in sort of the medieval period and looking at the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, you still there's still a lot of interpretation that's necessary in order to produce something that's edible. And uh, it boils down to... Um, two things, being able to understand what the text is actually saying to me, and so being able to read the languages that they're written in, and then being able to draw on experience as someone that's cooked for quite a few decades, though not professionally. That's how I, uh, I, I'm able to bring something that's worth tasting, I think, generally. <laughs> Amidst the disasters from experimenting. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, they happen. This, uh, what can we do? Uh, it's part of the um, the whole experimentation, I guess. So, obviously, I've gone, I've, I've done a little bit of um, research in the past few weeks, and um, I've released a few episodes about medieval European food and cuisine, and um, I've touched a lot of different areas, of course, very broadly with very broad strokes. But for you, you specialize a little bit more. And you've actually investigated uh, a specific manuscript, which is uh, the form of curry. Yeah, yeah. And to be even more specific, I'm uh, investigating a particular version of the form of curry that's based in a library that I, I live quite near, the Manchester John Rylands Library has a special collections library and uh, there is a particular manuscript, or I shall say in this case, it is actually a book just devoted to the recipes from uh, Richard's King Richard's uh, treaties mm. and um, that's what I'm focusing on particularly because it's the oldest and and probably the only one that actually dates back to Richard's time yeah. the other versions that survive um, like the one in the Brit- well there's several in the British Library uh, there's one famous one that's a, a roll a, like a scroll roll form and that's uh, Quite a few decades later, when it was when it was copied, so I'm, I'm I'm looking at that. But I do look at it's necessary. I find to look at other culinary collections, 
whether they be English and therefore some that are either near contemporary or before and occasionally afterwards. Mm. Um, but also I look at uh, contemporary French manuscripts that are written in Old French. And there's yeah. an Anglo-Norman collection, or a couple of Anglo-Norman collections that I also look at. And this is because I, they help sometimes in interpreting what I'm reading in Richard II's book. But also they feed into the commentary that appears in the book that I'm writing. So I'm able to sometimes um, explain how a particular recipe in Richard's cookery book, how that dish appeared prior to Richard's book, or indeed how it might have evolved um, in the century that followed. Um, that that isn't a, a big emphasis of the book, um, but it does come, it does um, feed into the commentary, and I think it is quite interesting to see how looking either side of Richard's book, the decades before and the decades afterwards, how it can help sometimes interpret what I'm reading, but also it can help to see how recipes have evolved through two or three centuries. Mm. So I guess my question would be, what are the challenges when uh, you're reading a recipe from that era, and especially in the interpretation department, and how does this recipe evolve uh, or has evolved from the decades prior to the decades after? Well, let's first explain that um, the John Ryland's copy of form of curry and is written in mm -hmm. middle english so that's the english that's similar well it's the same english that chaucer would have been familiar with because the book is contemporary with chaucer's works mm. um so um that english though we might people generally might pick up the odd word here and there it's quite it sounds quite different mostly um to people when they listen to that compared to modern English. So I've got to be able to make sure that I'm aware of how the, the language works, the vocabulary, and then you have, on top of that, there's a specialist a specialist vocabulary with regard to uh, cookery, certain so cookery terminology. I've got to make sure I don't make assumptions about the words and what they actually mean, and sometimes there are false friends, there are words that have shifted in meaning. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you... Even things like a cookery term that appears um, quite frequently in throughout the medieval period in English is the word to seethe. Things are seethed, mm. and we don't really use that term. So it's how do I, how do I translate that? Does it mean boiled? Mm -hmm. um, does it mean simmer? Does it just mean cooked? And so that's that's a, a particular challenge because you don't want to be telling people to. Um, you know, cook something too vigorously if it's something that is is better to be cooked on a gentle simmer, for example, or at just at the boiling point rather than being vigorously boiled. So there's those kind of things um, that have to be worked out. Sometimes um, that's through, you know, comparing the recipes within the cookery book itself and comparing it with other recipes that use these terms. Mm. So... What I've done with um, uh, with everything in um, the form of curry is look at every single ingredient wow. and every piece of equipment that's mentioned and every cookery terminology that's referred to. And I've defined them all and I've put them into uh, – part of my book is going to include a comprehensive and encyclopedic glossary – and 
all of those things, ingredients, equipment, and the cookery terminology will be properly defined to the best of my research mm. abilities. This was something I, I've been working on quite a lot because the, the section of the book that's about translating the recipes into modern English and also setting out the Middle English edition of the text, that's more or less done. There's a bit of tweaking now and again when I realise I need to alter my understanding of something. But the, the section that's about the glossary has grown and grown and grown and each entry is bigger mm. and I've still got quite a lot to do so that takes quite a lot of time and you know it's sometimes I think you, you speak about challenges but and I was thinking that sometimes it's just very simple things or things that we think are simple you know um, an apple might be referred to or a particular herb might be refer referred to and we can make assumptions about things like that um, yeah like I wrote a several blog posts on parsley and the types of parsley that were probably available huh. at the time and you know it's about establishing or trying as much as possible bringing all the evidence together to understand when some of these plant ingredients like the various herbs and apples and other fruits it's about understanding whether they were native species uh, to england that is or were they introduced or had they been um, in England for some time, and then essentially become um, as if they were native. Yeah, naturalized. As, yeah, naturalized. That's yeah. it. I could think of the word for a moment. And then it's looking at evidence for whether any of these plants were cultivated in gardens as well. There is some evidence, and there's been research done over the decades about English gardens. Mm -hmm. It's about trying to understand uh, to what extent these things were grown. And, and you can't write I can't write everything down that I read about and, and, and all the details, but in the glossary, the entries are quite, um, they are fairly detailed. They're not the kind of um, entry you'd see in a normal glossary. And that's, mm. to me, that I, I kind of like that work. I like trying to find out things and be sure as, as much as it is possible that I've got something right. Yeah. So that's become a challenge um, because it does take up quite a lot of time, and sometimes I can spend a day or more just on one thing, trying to work it out and right. going down rabbit holes yeah. and, and reading an article just to be sure that something I've, I've got it correct. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it makes sense. So I think your book is something we could talk a little bit about more about about it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, yeah, um, in to put it simply, it's... I wanted to produce an up-to-date uh, translation of Form of Curry. There are Form of Curry is the most famous English cookery book, though there are earlier collections of recipes, but it's this one is the most famous. And mm. I wanted to base it just on the John Ryland's library copy. Uh, the reason for that is because the previous edition of the text, which was done in 1985, um, that contained more recipes in it than are actually in the John Rylands. So there's, there's, there's extra recipes that yeah. have kind of been added on. And I like to view the John Rylands book as an item in itself. It tells you in the introduction that there are these 194 um, dishes and it gives a table for those 194 dishes, and it sticks to 194. But over the decades that passed, things 
later versions of the form of curry, they started to have a few extra recipes coming in. Mm. And uh, so, I, but I wanted to go back to this particular one. Uh, I suppose it's because I've handled it and looked at it, and it's you know it's available in the the, the town that I live in in Manchester. Yeah, and I just wanted to make it also translate it in a way that perhaps undoes some of the a few of the mistakes that I sometimes see on the internet for translations of certain recipes mm. where it's not necessarily that the translation is completely wrong but the interpretation of what they're reading isn't really what the language is saying so that's kind of quite technical way of explaining it but really mm. I wanted to make the most famous English cookery book accessible to people and to bring bring to it a, a level of research that I'm used to doing in you know previous academic work, but still trying to keep it accessible. So it's um, it will have an introduction explaining some of the, the background to the manuscript and the context of food at that time, and then it will have uh, about nine or ten chapters that are split into food categories. So uh, vegetables, nuts, meat, poultry, fish, pasta, pastry, and so on. And the recipes for each of those categories will appear both in Middle English and then will be followed by a modern English translation and then a commentary. And in Mm -hmm. the commentary, I'll be explaining uh, things to do with that particular dish where Richard may have eaten it somewhere that we know for sure that he ate it because we've got copies of menus where he attended a feast mm-hmm. and or where it might appear in what uh, uh, at a feast of uh, one of his contemporaries or perhaps just before so sometimes we can see some of the recipes in form of curry appearing in his um, successor's coronation feast so henry the fourth who mm-hmm. usurped the throne we we've got his coronation feast we've also got his marriage feast as well and some of the recipes from form of curry are listed in there so i'll i might bring things like that into the commentary i might explain something about what the the dish's name means if we can do that if it's possible to find that out each of those chapters and then it will have also this comprehensive and encyclopedic glossary at the end as well so it's turning out to be quite a big book and um i've got a, a publisher that's interested in it um but I'm actually, um, I'm not writing to a deadline. I'm writing to, so that I can produce it first to, to the standard I want it to be at before I actually formally submit it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a big uh, job. It's, uh, it's ambitious. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to occasionally weave the odd bit of humour in there because that's how I, I, I like to write like that. Because um, you know, sometimes you know, it, there, there is humour that comes through when you're, when, to me, anyway, when I'm looking at food and yeah. and what it meant then and what it might mean today, mm. kind of excess or the someone like a king of England, the kind of conspicuous consumption is the term that's used, sort of the extravagance of it all, compared to what you know what we might have for tea mm. <laughs> or dinner. To add to that, the recipes, the way you construct the recipes for the modern cook, will, will they be accessible to someone to cook them in their home now? Yeah, yes. Yeah. What What's being worked? I'm not actually going to do. I'm, they may or may not be included a mm. section of sampled recipes 
that I've worked on and experimented on, some of which may have already be out there through my videos and so forth. I might do that, uh, but also what I will do is if there's, um, if there's any way of dropping, um, not dropping hints, but actually giving information in the commentary section about the best way to tackle this dish, then I'll put that in there. I mean, I, I won't have gone through all 194. That's something I don't have the time to do. But I have gone through quite a few of them. Yeah. And there are also a lot of um, directions that overlap between the recipes so mm. there are similarities between a number of the recipes but yes yeah, so the idea is then that the the book is uh, useful for somebody doing academic research but it's also useful for somebody that's replicating reproducing adapting the recipes whether they be a um, somebody that reenacts history or whether they're just someone that likes to cook things from from previous centuries There'll be information in the commentary that will actually bring the, the dish alive. They'll understand what the dish is, because sometimes it's not immediately obvious. And they'll have a, an idea how to go about doing it. Yeah. A few tips thrown in here and there. Brilliant. <laughs> so I guess that kind of brings us to my next question, which... Um, or something that we can talk about a little bit perhaps about uh, the Anglo-Norman language uh, style of recipes what's um, what's all that about <laughs> well quite often you'll hear people say that um, you know the earliest english cookery book or cookery collection is form of curry it probably you could make a case for saying it is the earliest book if you look at the john ryland's copy because there are earlier english recipes or recipes from England yeah. that come before the form of curry, but they're kind of not in book form. They're a, a sort of part of a collection of all of miscellaneous, uh, miscellaneous um, texts, prose or verse. Um, nothing, not sometimes nothing to do with cookery, but you'll find a few yeah. recipes stuck in there. And the Anglo-Norman collections, there are two of them. They are like that. They appear within collection of uh, various texts. So both of those are actually found in the British Library. There's uh, two different manuscripts. One's called Additional 32085, very sexy name, and the other one's Royal 12CX, mm -hmm. II, or Royal 12C7. I'm actually, at the moment, uh, looking at one of these uh, manuscripts for a video I'm producing, and it's for a particular recipe, and I'm looking at the manuscript. It's available digitized. It is written in Anglo-Norman French, so Anglo-Norman is a dialect, or the dialect of French, that evolved in England. So it is similar to Old French, and if you speak some fr modern French, you will pick up some of the the sounds, though the mm -hmm. spellings are quite different often and are not consistent. And the these recipes were written in that language, and it's the language that evolved from about 1066 when the, the Normans conquered England, and it carried on for several hundred years and was kind of a, the language of the elite um, Anglo-Normans, the Normans that became English, as it were. And uh, and also it became a language that would have been used, I suppose, by English people that had survived the conquest um, that wanted to get on in the world. They would have probably also have 
become familiar with the language too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what these collections were written in, and they are earlier. They one of them dates to the manuscript dates to about the end of the 13th century, and the other one to the, near the beginning of the 14th century. And most likely, these are not uh, brand new recipes, but they were recipes that were already being used in England. But that's this is how they've survived as collections and the one that I've been looking at is really quite tersely written very very brief instructions yeah a lot of it reads just like a, um, a list of ingredients you know the names given list of ingredients some very basic cookery suggested and then it tells you what color the dish should look like mm -hmm. so, and yeah. that's it and you have to take that i have to take that and other people have to take that and turn it into something that's that's yeah that's edible. how that's how ancient recipes are it's also badly punctuated so it's actually it's actually quite difficult when you're looking at it in the you know in the manuscript you think why haven't they punctuated that list there so sometimes where you know items run in together and you're thinking what's this describing fortunately somebody has somebody did a, an edition back in the 80s 1986 of both of them so you can look at that to to help yeah <laughs> I, do, i do look at that to help me out and but also i like to be able to translate it for myself my um old french and anglo-norman is not it's not the area i've specialized in so i've had to improve my uh, mm. anglo-norman and old french in order to be able to understand it but i can follow the manuscript particularly the the royal one um, is the one that's easy to access the other one you have to actually go to the library but the royal manuscript is available digitized as i say and i can you know the, the script's fairly easy for me to read and as long as you get used to the abbreviations that are used then uh, it's you know it's quite easy to follow and there are some recipes in there that don't really seem to carry on um, the recipe that i'm working on on the video I, i'm not aware that it appears in later collections it doesn't appear for example in form of curry and it's um it's a pistachio or pine nut tart and it's uh, set in a pastry made from uh, chestnut flour oh okay and i'm not aware um that there is another recipe for a chestnut pastry tart other than an english translation of the anglo-norman that's made just a few years later um it, it's a copy a translation of the the recipe yeah, of, the, of yeah, some yeah. of the recipes uh, into english and <laughs> it's the same dish but i don't see i haven't seen the dish appear elsewhere though i might i might yet discover something okay so what type of um dishes or what what ingredients uh, were very popular uh, then in this particular yeah well let me read some of them through to you i'll do it in english not in, <laughs> not in anglo norman you don't want to hear my anglo norman it's, uh... well it will sound fine to me i don't know any anglo norman <laughs> uh, let me just have a look so if we look at the i'll look at the one i mentioned the royal manuscript it starts off with something called white syrian food and that's a kind of porridge made with almond milk and rice flour and you add capon meat and ginger and sugar and a bit of wine <laughs> and uh, that is something that is copied in later manuscripts we get various uh, arabic influenced dishes that are this sort of uh, 
porridge type dish yeah. made with rice or rice flour and then you add capon or chicken meat to it and it's sweetened i quite like it uh, the thought of to a lot of people of eating sweetened chicken they find that difficult i think it's a thought isn't it <laughs> yeah it's actually quite nice surprising mm. that it works but presumably the rice was quite expensive back then uh, um well it would have, would have been imported probably from italy um, yeah i yes it would i would it would have been relatively expensive though not as expensive say for example as the spices which come from further afield and, and sugar and that kind of thing. and sugar will be even more expensive so yeah basically yeah, yeah the, the food... but i don't I, I don't know the prices of i've not researched that mm -hmm. um, i'm sure there are records of rice being imported somewhere that i will discover <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so that would have been ground though into flour. Wow. There are there is a recipe, not in this collection, but in form of curry where whole rice is used. Mm. It just it's just basically a kind of saffron uh, risotto type thing. But a lot of the dishes in this Anglo-Norman collection and later collections involve rice flour because it's used as a thickening agent as well, and it's used to create this sort of kind of porridge slash slurry thick mm. thing which sounds wonderful doesn't it when i when i use that <laughs> you've then got the same dish the next dish is basically the same but it's green and they color it with parsley right. so it's ex almost exactly the same and then you've got a yellow version and that's colored with saffron yay and um so these are all called syrian food i'm trying to think what the let me just check Back in the see what the original language was. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, so the, the word that's used 
is a kind of corruption of the French of Syria. So the word is désiré. So blanc désiré, that's white, food of Syria. Vert désiré, green. And then there's agnesiré, which is the yellow one. Right. So there you go. And then they claim to have something called Spanish food, which is another one of these rice flour dishes. And that's just got pistachios uh. round up and put on the top. And it's seasoned with cloves. Uh, right. Which the recipe says the cloves actually enhance the flavor of pistachio nuts. That's quite interesting because I put some cloves in my recipe, mm. uh, my pistachio tart recipe that's going to appear in a video. There are some cloves in there. Ooh, how intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's a, a mulled wine drink thickened with egg, various stews, and let's have a look how it continues. Various pottages. Again, a lot of these are um, rice flour or wheat starch based. So you've got them and they're flavoured with things like um, hazelnuts, like fried hazelnut kernels, hawthorn blossom, roses and strawberries or cherries. So there's a whole series of these types of thick pottages mm. using ingredients that were most definitely uh, available in England, you know, that were native things. There's a sweetened apple dish, which is quite interesting which is kind of wine and eggs and, and some very fine wheat flour, it says. And then you dice up the apples and they're set on the top of this kind of thick custody thing. Mm. <laughs> and then you sprinkle, um, you have to add a bit of sugar to, to um, balance the wine, it says, which is an interesting expression, which confirms to us that when sugar is used in a lot of recipes, it's not about making it absolutely sweet. You know, the way we might think of uh, very sweet puddings today. Yeah. But it's about count uh, as a counterpoint to something else. So they'll use sugar as a counterpoint to, as it says here, the strength of the wine. So the wine's probably quite vinegary. <laughs> and so they're sweetening the wine a little bit. And sometimes it's used to um, balance out a spice such as ginger. So in the hazelnut pottage, they use sugar to balance the bitterness, it says, of the ginger. Mm. And the same with the hawthorn pottage as well. So they're using all these imported spices. And then it goes on. There's several broths in there. One of them supposedly a German broth, mm. uh, which has got um, cloves, cubebs, and fried onions along with almond milk. And then it says that it should be hotly spiced with the cloves and cubebs which is a bit scary because I find too many clothes and <laughs> be like, it's like uh, medicine, isn't it? It's like going to the dentist. You get that sort of dental, yeah. um, <laughs> stringent uh, flavour coming through. Yeah. So there's, there's things like that. And then there's this tart that I'm going to do, which is like using uh, pistachios in a toffee. Mm. They're also in that recipe is quite interesting, as I'll explain in my video, because it uses an ingredient called gingerbread or gingerbread translated, which isn't, it's more like a toffee. Right. That was something that was elite households bought as a pre-made confection. So that goes into this mix. <laughs> and there's several other, um, there's a jelly dish and some braised fish 
um, various, various other bits. So that gives you a good idea, doesn't it? Of yeah. The kind of things that were going on then. And I think what I personally feel that as you get into, I mean, there's only like 32 recipes in this collection, but as you move towards form of curry, you get a more variety of things. Um, some of the, those dishes survive or get adapted. Um, and then other, there's more emphasis, I think, in form of curry on roasted meats and more fish dishes as mm. well. It's fascinating, you know. I mean, all these um, all these foods, yeah, uh, all these uh, recipes, they sound, they do sound quite different. And there's, obviously there's an element of familiarity as well with the ingredients themselves. But the recipe, yeah, it's things that we wouldn't normally do it this way nowadays or in the last hundred years or so. And it's a really interesting challenge to actually bring these recipes to the forefront today and try and make them interpret what the people ate back then, but also make it palatable for us today. And Yeah, I suppose it depends what you want to do. I mean, there are some people that just want to replicate as closely as possible, um, you know, what they think was eaten. And so they'll try and produce something as authentic as it were as possible and then there are people like me that kind of yeah i don't mind that idea but you know i also want to enjoy the food and i'm not saying you can't enjoy these foods but there are ways through experimenting where you inevitably end up drawing upon your own your own heritage your own food heritage your own cultural heritage and you you will and I find myself introducing techniques that I've learned in modern cookery and applying those to medieval cookery. Mm. Um, plus, it works the other way around as well. Sometimes there are things in medieval cookery, the way things are done, and you think, oh, that's worth doing in dishes today. I mean, one of the, it's a small thing, but I quite like the idea of, of parboiling onions before you actually then fry them use them oh. in, in something that's quite nice um it also means if you parboiled them in a in a in a sort of some stock yeah or broth as they would make they would have had things like cape on broth and beef broth but if you parboil the onion in that it flavors that broth and you can use that in something so there's all there's there are little things that i think can be can be adapted i i think i said before in the last time we interviewed you um generally speaking um I think pastries improved since the medieval period. <laughs> I think we we make pastry better now than they did because with the introduction of animal fats like lard and wood butter, which they didn't use back then. Yeah. Um, although their use of eggs and egg yolks in a, in a pastry dough, I find that's quite interesting. It does provide you with more robust pastry yeah. than you get with, say, a short crust. Uh, and so that can have its own advantages if you want something that's quite a, a sturdy pastry. <laughs> mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes they were using the pastry as a container for, you know, as it were, to cook the food in. Yeah. Um, and other times they were eating it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I guess I mean we still use egg yolks to finish our pastries anyway. So yeah, we not? do, but but normally it's in addition to. Butter, yeah, 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 of or course, something like that. Of course, whereas yeah. they they didn't use butter mm. in pastry. It works both ways. Sometimes I learn from reading medieval recipes, uh, little techniques that I can find. 
but a lot of the time they're not gone into in great detail. There's a certain level of knowledge already expected of you when you're looking at these recipes, mm. generally speaking. And in the case of the Anglo-Norman ones, they, they hardly ever give any real detail in their you know, you might tell you to boil something together and that's about it. Oh, You've yeah, got to yeah. work the rest out for yourself. I mean, if, if I read to you a recipe from, um, uh, it's not a recipe per se, but it's from uh, Athenos quoting Archestratus, basically, and it says, we must speak of the conger eel. Archestratus in his gastronomy relates where each part of it ought to be purchased, the conger. You have the head of the conger, friend, in Sicyon, a fat and strong and large head and all the belly parts. Then boil it for a long time in salt water. Sprinkle it with green herbs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> and that, that, that's about it as a, for a recipe <laughs> or for instructions. It doesn't, it doesn't even tell you which herbs. So. Yeah, yeah. It's up to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's very difficult to interpret uh, certain things, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I was thinking about when you compare, say, that and then sort of medieval English stuff, the earlier medieval English um, collections that survived, and then compare that with, say, um, the Italian uh, Bartolomeo, I think that's how you say it, Bartolomeo Scappi. Yeah. I think it's Scappi, or is it Scappi? I'm terrible. I don't know any Italian, I'm afraid. So he was he wrote something in 1570, and I think his recipes, though they still confuse me, <laughs> they are more detailed. There's, there's more detail and it's, it's a huge work as well and so you do kind of generally see a progression yeah as the centuries go by if you as you move out of the medieval period you are leaving behind less detailed recipes although towards the end of the medieval period they are beginning to become more detailed and then you arrive with someone like scappy and the detail is quite good Yeah, do you think that's fascinating? Because do you think that's because of the evolution of technology, which obviously you know goes into the kitchen as well, but also the evolution of um, um, uh, the different classes and how the the system, the different working classes and the merchant classes, they evolve and they become more uh, rich in a way, more more wealthy. So they have the option to get all these ingredients, and they get cheaper the ingredients as well. And then so everybody wants to be fashionable and cook all this food. So you need to know how to cook. You don't rely on cooks and chefs. So you have to do it yourself or whatever. I'm not, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure, to be honest. It's not something that I would could offer anything that's um, well-researched. Yeah, what yeah, I yeah. would say with someone like Scappy, what I find interesting about him is there are um, illustrations that I believe he himself produced and, uh, and they appear on plates and um, copper plates, I think. And you can, in the edition that's available in English, that's been translated by Terence Scully, the, those drawings are replicated. And you talked about technology, and what is interesting about Scappy is, is you've got all of the items that were in his kitchen being drawn, mm. lots of examples. And so I think he becomes someone that maybe makes cookery more of a technology. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Is he wanting to pass on his knowledge of cookery? The, you know, the, the, and, and that's why you've got these things recorded, drawn and so forth, and, and use this and use that and put it in this kind of container. Whereas the medieval stuff, like the Anglo-Norman stuff, you, know, you basically must already know how to cook, for sure. 
and they're kind of just reminders of ingredients really that go into things. I think something like form of curry is a bit in between. There are some recipes that uh, have some detail. There is a some of the more difficult recipes go into measurements even. Um, so there's a, a recipe for uh, doing like mini castles and it tells you how to how how big the turrets are. Mm. I, I, it's a very, very confusing recipe, actually, I'll, I will say. So the saying it was something that would have been used as quite a spectacular dish because it was a set of lights. They, they had um, <laughs> some kind of spirit, uh, probably a kind of brandy that was or an eau de vie or something that was uh, set alight. And so you bring them to the castle and they would have all these flames. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been brought to the table, probably just straight to the, the king's table. But for saying it was such a spectacular dish... Um, it's not that well written. It's a bit confusing. It right. takes some working out. The, uh, the the cook that produced that could have done a better job, I think, in making it clearer. <laughs> but yes, there are there are some detailed recipes, more detailed recipes in form of curry. And then in the 15th century, you get other collections that have quite detailed recipes. Still, some you still you still get recipes that basically almost you know you you can't work out what's being told because sometimes it's a copying thing it's how you know a recipe's been butchered as it were over the the decades as it's gone by and it's kind of makes no sense anymore but for some reason the scribe decides it should still be recorded oh (laughs) Uh, you get that happening and um but i think you know I, i don't know enough about early modern recipes collections in england or renaissance collections i don't know enough to but i do know that um i do know that they they tend to be more detailed mm. Um, mm. and Fair more helpful and of course as you move into 17th 18th 19th century you get a bit more information and certainly the 20th century is when things really started to be you know it was really then wasn't it about telling basic folk how they how they can cook yeah. More elegantly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of Fanny Craddock. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that kind of thing. Fair enough. We're being instructed, you know, and, and, and when I went to school back in the seventies, you know, and I did my home economics O level, you know, it was you know, you you did learn the basic stuff, you know, baking and, and various cooking techniques that maybe were things that were passed down to in previous generations to by mothers and instead we were learning it at school. That's cool, yeah, yeah. How oh, interesting. Yeah, we didn't do any home economics at school. <laughs> I think it was all yeah. That's my claim to um being a that's my that's my main training, my O level. I did uh, yeah. two or three years of cookery. So yeah, that, <laughs> I, I've never done any professional cookery and I, I I keep thinking one day I might actually do something and do some professional courses. Right. Yeah, it's um yeah, it's another challenge, another thing to do. It takes time. Yeah, in terms of uh, foods of easy medieval foods and uh, sweets and so on, obviously you tr- you're trying to make the recipes easy for us for the modern cook. I do think for me it's important that I don't overcomplicate a recipe and if it's possible to simplify it, I will do. I don't necessarily want to do that all the time. Sometimes, you know, the the original recipe is doable. You know, even mm. if you don't have, a, you know, a medieval kitchen, it's it's doable. You know, you can adapt things. You don't have to use spits and so forth. You can use um, an oven or whatever, 
or even a barbecue. But there are things that I will do, like I did in a series called um, called Easy Medieval Food, and in that I often adapted the recipes um, mm. to make them simpler. So, for example, instead of cooking a whole chicken, I decided to do the dish as chicken portions. Mm. Um, I think it was more accessible that way. And um, so there's those kind of things that I might do. And and also I did a dish which, in some ways, it would have been nice to have followed the recipe and had and made some comfits, the little uh, sugar-coated um, seeds, and put those on this pudding dish. Um, it didn't tell you in the recipe to make them. It just said put comfits on in the dish. And so I suppose somebody else in the medieval kitchen would have been working away doing that spending the whole day producing these comfits because yeah. they take forever to make don't they because i've got sort of dozens of layers of sugar on them so i just simplified it and thought well i'll take the spice that's going in there which was coriander and instead of coating coriander seeds in sugar i'll just grind coriander and sugar and sprinkle that on top of the dish and i thought that was much easier and the, the flavor was still there you still got this i still had the same flavor profile so i try to do that as much as possible so yeah i think it's simplifying is important um my the video that i'm just editing at the moment the one i mentioned about pistachio tart and the gingerbread when i originally did this one of my first videos i made it with pine nuts instead of the pistachios because there's the option in the recipe yeah and um i made my own gingerbread because i found a medieval recipe from a medical collection for making gingerbread so i made that my own toffee and then added it to the filling and i thought this is a bit faffy really and i think people don't necessarily want to go to that trouble so i just worked out a way of creating the same kind of toffee filling with the pistachios without having to make the gingerbread this time so in a way it was probably being more faithful to the recipe because I don't think the cooks being told to make the gingerbread first. They're actually using the stuff that they bought in, you know, because this was, um, you know, a mate, it was it was bought in boxes. You get boxes of gingerbread that elite households would buy with their spices, and then someone obviously decided, oh, I'll use some of this gingerbread to make a nice toffee filling for these tarts. Uh, and so that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm uh, sort of simplifying it really, but in a slightly different way. So yeah, it is important for me, I think, to make things as simple as possible though i'm probably will attempt something complicated one day i keep thinking i might do a cockatrice where you sew a cockerel and a the front of a cockerel and the back of a, a piglet piglet yeah and vice versa and you make this stuffing for them and then you sew it up yeah then, jesus i suppose to spit roast that that's going to be difficult doing that on the barbecue but you know, uh, yeah, yeah i might do that one day yeah. <laughs> what a recipe great Okay, fantastic. So maybe I could just ask you one question then. Go on, yeah. <laughs> so when you've been looking at European medieval food, is there anything that stood out to you that really appeals to you? Is there a dish or a type of cooking that's appealed to you? Mm. Yeah, let me let me answer this question. That's a very interesting question because, um, yeah, I mean, the... This is called turning the tables on the interviewer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you're not supposed to let you're not supposed to let the the interviewee take over. But I've got my <laughs> got to get my back. You know, I've got to get back at you somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, because I was trying to find out um, mostly the similarities between the different cuisines. So I was basically struck with the f- similarities of um, some dishes, like the potages. So there's a lot of potages and broths and stews. And of course, this is something that struck. And then the uh, not, a speci- not a specific dish, but obviously the other thing was the use of spices, which was a lot more prominent in early European, in medieval European cuisine. Yeah, there was there was a lot of spice, man. There's a lot of pepper, a lot of Cuban pepper, a lot of ginger. And you, it's still today, we don't... Of course, we're talking about elite food, you know, and, and we're not talking about peasant farmers would have mm. cooked. They may have had access to some spices, uh, perhaps in continental Europe they may have had you know for example access to saffron and I don't know enough about like Spain and Italy on what spices if there are any of the kind of spices that they were able to cultivate mm. or whether they I think were still importing the stuff as well saffron's the one thing because I mean we grew in England saffron yeah. was great yeah. but so, it, it was still imported as well mm. but generally this is elite cuisine isn't it and today in England I don't know about other parts of Europe, but spices, you know, they're not it's, they're not used that much unless you're talking about Indian food. Yeah, yeah, it, it's exactly that. Yeah, it's not as used as... Uh, you have certain spices like cinnamon and cloves and which are used in a more Christmassy kind of thing, but not, yeah, baking and Christmassy thing, but not in everyday, in everyday cuisine. And, yeah, I think that, yeah... The, Coriander, pine nuts, uh, there was um, all that stuff used on, uh, in abundance, <laughs> pistachios, almonds. So did you like the idea of, of, of the, the, the use of spices and a range, quite a big range of spices um, in savoury foods as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think um, I've done... So, well, yeah, in the weeks that followed or during my research for, for the medieval food, I was cooking, obviously, at home and I was just putting plenty of spices on my everyday kind of stews or, you know, I was making things with chickpeas or beans or uh, sauces and I was just putting like coriander and cinnamon and uh, cumin yeah, <laughs> in abundance. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and you can, I think, um, I think I, I, I can't speak for non-British people, but I think British people, when it comes to cooking, when they're cooking with spices at home today, they shy away from using too much mm. they're scared of uh, of using or they there are certain spices that you know you can accidentally use too much of like cloves for example can completely ruin a dish if you like we said earlier if you use too many but yeah there's a, there's a shyness when it comes to saffron you know there's this idea that you know two two strands of saffron will <laughs> are enough and then it's never enough you can you can with certain dishes, you can use quite a lot of saffron, and it actually doesn't spoil the dish. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think one of the things that I think I've learned from doing medieval cookery is to be more um, adventurous and bold with spices. And you know, you do. It is about tasting things and testing things. But yeah, I think that's something that you can take away from medieval European food and medieval English food that you know spices can spice up your life yeah <laughs> uh, don't be afraid to have a go don't be afraid of spices absolutely buy, but buy whole 
spices generally i'd say buy whole spices mm. and grind them yourself if you can I and mean, you can't always do that and yeah i don't always do it myself but that does make a difference using yeah. like whole coriander seeds rather than ground coriander yeah absolutely and then i think one last thing is the use of almonds and almond milk and almond flour yeah. like almond milk especially it was <laughs> so many recipes that you find yeah uh, <laughs> which is i guess yes it is it is interesting um yeah how much almonds almond milk because it was used as a, um, a substitute for broth really mm. or sometimes milk itself yeah there's more almond milk appears in form of curry than cow's milk um <laughs> it isn't always about religion either because i mean obviously it, it can be it, it's important in uh, fasting food yeah uh, uh, the the lean days as it were when you're um they call them fish days in english yeah. and yeah they use almond milk instead of a broth like a meat broth or a capon broth in a dish and yeah it, but that isn't always the case there are, i think it became a quite ubiquitous ingredient in a lot of things where you just use almond milk um sometimes you know um, i make my own almond milk and it it is quite a nice thing to do it's much better than the it's got more flavor mm. um than you know stuff that you buy in a carton and it's not it's not really the same thing you know, there's right. more almonds in almond milk that you make you know medieval almond milk than there is in your cart which has probably got one or two percent almonds really <laughs> i never bought so so bought almond milk to be honest i don't know um so do you have a video on how to make your own almond milk on your channel uh i've not done a video it's it did appear on one of my recipes printed recipes that i did for my monthly subscribers so it wasn't made generally mm. available but okay. to be honest i borrowed i adapted not quite copied exactly i adapted uh, a almond milk recipe from someone called lorna sass who was an academic that wrote a book about richard ii's food all right okay and she did it back in the 70s and i got i managed to get a copy of it and i really liked her recipe it was quite straightforward but so are you saying that i've got to do a video then of um how to make <laughs> almond milk maybe i should stick that on my youtube and on my website so that people can always refer to it if it's tastier if it's tastier than uh, so bought and if it's easy enough and if it's used to to as a broth as a substitute broth so it's very ubiquitous in use then i think uh, i'll i'll i probably have to say you know don't i'm going to say um use try and use organic almonds uh, because of this the the problem is with almond production particularly in california is it's wrecking the environment isn't it because these massive almond tree farms where they it's just a monoculture yeah um whereas if you can get organic ones they are a bit more expensive but the italians do nice almonds mm. and um i try and get them whenever i can because i don't really want to encourage people <laughs> <laughs> to kind of contribute to environmental degradation collapse, collapse yeah <laughs> which is what which is what is going to happen in or is happening in those monocultures in yeah. california all right okay brilliant <laughs> great thank you so much chris uh, for all your um, 
time and information here. And um, yeah, looking forward to seeing your book uh, published at some point in the near future. Yeah, and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed chatting to you. Brilliant. Have a good night and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah, take care. Bye. Bye bye. Well, that was very exciting. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Dr. Christopher Monk, for all his amazing knowledge about medieval English cuisine and the recipes from the form of curry. Now stay tuned for the extra content exclusive for Patreon backers. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to Patreon and um, subscribe there, where for $3 a month you can get the podcasts early and ad-free, plus with extra bonus content. Additionally, you'll find a lot of my recipes and interpretations of ancient recipes by me, cooked either on the barbecue or in the kitchen, and a lot of other of my own archaeogastronomical musings, writings and thoughts. It will help immensely uh, produce this podcast more often with more interesting content and interviewing amazing guests, such as today's uh, one. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.